Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project, where our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. And we aim to empower modern leaders through knowledge and emotional intelligence to create meaningful impact. In today's episode, we're greatly honoured to be joined by Matt Lohmeyer of Negotiation Partners. One of the many skill sets that a great leader needs to have in their toolkit is the ability to negotiate. And Matt has joined us today to share with us many great lessons that he has built over time through his experience as a negotiation leader and a negotiation coach. Sit back, we hope you enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project. We're really glad that you've joined us today for what's going to be a wonderful session where I'm joined by a very dear friend of mine, Matt Lohmeyer, and we're going to talk about the negotiation skills that all leaders should have in their kit bag. Now, I've known Matt for quite a long time, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But first of all, Matt, please say hello to our audience and generally introduce yourself. Uh, thank you. Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, thank you, Mick, for inviting me. I, uh, I look forward to sharing some stories and some of the insights uh, on negotiation with you. You'll find that I'm uh, quite passionate about the subject. You may need to rein me in so we can stay, stay with the time allowed. Well, that I know for certain and from firsthand experience, <laughs> your passion for this subject. And I alluded to the fact that we've known each other for quite some time. So it is 13 years. I was thinking about it the other day. And you may be surprised to know, if you remember all of them, I certainly do, that I've been through your programs no less than five times. I worked it out the other day. So two of those times were, let's call it educational, where I did a four-day course with you on negotiation skills with no particular negotiation in mind for preparation. Yep. One of those programs was when I was on a executive leadership program with my former company and you led the negotiation chapter or module uh, within that program, which was absolutely wonderful and life-changing. And then there were three examples where I engaged your services to help me and my team to prepare specifically for some complex negotiations that we're going into. And I've got to tell the audience, and I know you already yeah. know this, that we won all three of those contracts and they were multi-million dollar contracts. So my track record with you, I have to say, is five, five for five. So how do you feel about that when I tell you that? That's, uh, I'd forgotten about all five, actually. I remember three. It must have been a bit of a blur, but... Um, I- that's why I love doing uh, what I do and, and why all of my team are motivated because in the end, um, you know, it's all about making sure that our clients are successful. In the end, that's the only thing that really matters. And so it's been, uh, it's been a delight to have been working with you and the team uh, on those deals and great that uh, they've, um, they've delivered. Thank you, Matt. And I'm always going to be grateful the lessons that I've learned and I've kept in my kit bag, which is what we're going to talk about today, I've had those there for 13 years and I can still recite the majority of them. Don't test me today. But, but. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's one of, the, one of the delights whenever I speak with somebody who's done the program three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, and uh, you, know, you can hear it in their words. Uh, the language is still there. They still remember. I mean, how many courses can we think of that, you know, we still remember the skills and we still remember the language and we still remember and apply those skills? Um, you know, it's, um, I love it. 
just love it. I was not exaggerating when I said life-changing and anyone that does your programs, and uh, we should put that into a little bit of context. We'll talk about this towards the end of the program, but we'll mention right now that you are uh, the head of negotiation partners. You've formed that business and you help individuals learn negotiation skills, but you also help organizations prepare for complex negotiations as we discussed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's, you know, it's one of those things that I fell to almost by accident uh, because I was, you know, working in a capacity negotiating deals. I was in pharmaceutical licensing. That was my business working out of London uh, in the UK, traveling the world, uh, doing licensing deals with pharma companies and came to Australia many, many years ago. And uh, I had done many negotiation skills programs over time. Uh, But there was one that I still remember. This was June 2006, which changed the course of my career because it wasn't like any of the other programs that I'd ever attended. It was run by by two professional negotiators, by people who actually did this for a living. And I remember going in thinking, you know, pick up one or two things, you know, a bit of time out of the office. And uh, I ended up coming away from that program thinking, you've got no idea what you're doing. And uh, that was the catalyst for me to uh, resign my job and train as a professional negotiator because I'd seen that that's what I wanted to do. Wow. That's now... That's now 14 years ago. Wow. Okay. So the world is better for that because uh, you are a true professional at your craft and you fell into something that you clearly love and you Mm. put so much energy into and all of your students that you've had since and all the companies that you've helped since are richer uh, for the fact that 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 chance encounter happened and that self-realization happened that clearly you loved it, but you also, what I picked up there is you recognize that maybe your, your trade wasn't where it needed to be at that point when you saw those two master negotiators, but you had the self-awareness to do something about it. Well, I guess that's part of my realizations and uh, that, you know, negotiation, I'd always thought of negotiation as a business skill. It's not a business skill. The ability to negotiate is a life skill. And unfortunately, it's, it's something that you need to learn like any skill. It's not anything that anybody has from birth, quite the contrary. So it's, you know, it's something that you need to learn. And it's, it's such a powerful skill uh, once you know how it works. And yeah, I look forward to sharing some of those with your audience. That's going to be a really great scene setter for the conversation that we are going to have today. So thank you for that, Matt. I want to wind the clock back a little bit further. Before you fell into it in that way, what, what were you doing before you decided to make that pivot? I, was, um, I thought I had the best job in the world. Uh, back then I was working with, uh, I was in technology commercialization. Really that's working with the brightest minds in a research organization, the inventors, scientists who discover new drugs, new diagnostics, new technologies, you know, cutting edge science. And then making sure that that is, you know, patented, protected, and then uh, passed on to corporations, companies, other research institutes who can turn those great ideas into products that can make a difference in the marketplace. My specialist area was pharmaceuticals, life sciences. So, you know, there are a number of cancer drugs, for example, that are now in the market that I didn't invent. But you know, I had a hand in that journey to make sure that they didn't just die, but they got passed into the right hands. And now there are, you know, some drugs in the market that actually, you know, save people's lives. That was terrific. Lots of negotiating, of course, Um, lots of negotiating about potential, because you never know what these things are going to be, how effective they're going to be, whether they're going to work at all. So, you know, you have a lot of challenges in trying to fix a price and payments and everything else for something that you don't know whether it's going to be useful at all. So uh, interesting negotiations. That's what I was doing before I uh, changed careers. There's something that I picked up there in what you're saying, and I think it's really important for the audience to think about. My view is that any life-changing or world-changing invention or innovation is always a result of a collection of people working together to make that happen. So 
whilst your name might not be the, the inventor's name on the patent, the role that you played still facilitated to make that happen, to make it come to market, and then to realise a vision that the inventor probably had to actually make a difference in the world. So it's really important to take due credit uh, for all people that are in those roles where you're supporting and you're part of a broader team that is developing something that does change the world. So please do yeah. take that. And it's, and it's really satisfying to do that and to, you know, I look back with great pride at some of those uh, deals that, um, um, that I had a hand in. Um, I, you know, and I work with, um, I volunteer some time to mentor some entrepreneurs and startups coming out of universities. You know, um, there's a little bit of self-interest in it for me because I love the cutting edge of science. So it's a great way to stay in touch with that in my past life, which I don't see a lot of these days um, when, you know, you're negotiating large deals, which usually are, you know, large procurement deals or dispute resolutions and buying you know, equipment and planes and all sorts of things. Um, so I get my technology fix working with those bright young minds and uh, and helping them out and, and, you know, sharing as much as they can to get them on their journey. There's an African proverb that we often relate to here on the Leadership Project, which is if you want to go fast, you go alone. And if you want to go far, you go together, and what you're mm. talking about is really the the uh, the embodiment of that. So that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I love that. Tell us your background before that, then, uh, Matt. So, it was a science background or as a business background? Yes, I did a, I'm I'm a scientist by training. Um, I did my PhD and postdoc in cancer drug development, actually at the bench. Okay. Um, but then I defected to the dark side and started working in the in the commercial side of science. Essentially, that translation between that boundary between research and commerce. Um, and that's a really interesting space because you need people there. Really, it's like any boundary. You need people who speak both languages, who can speak science, but who can also speak commerce, who understand the challenges of the science environment, but who also understand the commercial environment. And as negotiators, as leaders, not just negotiators, as leaders, you're often at those boundaries where you need to manage the friction on one side, you know, the development team or the delivery team that's uh, charged with performing uh, the task. And on the other hand, you've got the client who's got certain expectations. You know, you're always on that point of friction and being able to speak both languages, being able, having the ability to listen and to really understand what's going on on both sides so you can, so you can manage that interface is really important. And so, you know, the ability to negotiate those skills will come in very handy. We are the Leadership Project, so let's talk about your own leadership journey. So was there a particular moment in your career that you became self-aware that you had a certain leadership skill or a certain affinity towards leadership? Any pivotal moment there for you? I... Personally, for myself, I haven't really thought of my journey as uh, a leadership journey per se. And, of course, in my role, I lead negotiation teams. Um, I work with a small group of colleagues. Um, and, you know, technically I'm the boss, but anybody who calls me the boss will get fired. Uh, not that I can fire them because they're all my friends. So yeah. it's, <laughs> it's, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's leadership, but in a very non-hierarchical and in a very, very robust, but very um, an unstructured way. I'm not a great fan of hierarchy uh, in terms of getting, getting things done. Um, and leading by example is going to be the most important piece, although my colleagues will be the first to say that sometimes I don't set the most effective examples, but there you go. We're all, um, we all have our crosses to bear. Winding back then, think about this is probably more than 16 years ago, although you can come across different leaders in all walks of life, even yeah. today when you're running your own business, you're still going to come across leaders. Can you Absolutely. think of any specific leaders that really inspired you or really caught your attention and went, uh, wow, that's... That's an inspiring leader, really encourages me and inspires me to do things. Can you think of any examples and what 
appealed to you about their leadership style? For me personally, um, leadership is uh, about a number of different things, about the courage to do things that need to be done, even if they may be unpopular or, um, uh, you know, politically challenging. I think what we can see today is, uh, you know, a, a very clear examples of looking at the politics around the globe where we have different, very different kinds of leadership. Uh, personally, and and uh, maybe I should have declared this at the beginning of the podcast. I'm German by birth and upbringing, um, so uh, I do um, have a certain uh, degree of respect, or great degree of respect, for uh, Angela Merkel, the German mm. Chancellor, and yeah. the way that she has led uh, the country through very difficult and challenging times. Uh, funnily enough, she's a scientist. All oh, right, okay. uh, by background, uh, so very driven by uh, rational and, uh, you know, coherent thought and structured thinking rather than, a, you know, your traditional politician, which is all about, you know, schmoozing and, uh, you know, working the numbers and all of those sort of things. And, you know, maybe there lies a little bit of a, uh, a secret to, to her success uh, compared to some of her peers, but, you know, they don't want to turn this political. Um, I'm a scientist by training, so for me, um, bringing a team along, inspiring them and giving them the opportunity to succeed and to, to forge their own path, if you like. Um, that's something that I've always enjoyed in the uh, leaders that I've had the privilege of working with. Um, you know, enough rope for you to learn, not enough rope to fall off. Uh, or when you do fall off, to not hit the ground. Yeah. <laughs> something that... Um, that has worked for me and, and leaders who lead by example, but also who encourage their teams, those who they lead, to develop their skills in an active kind of way, not just, well, you know, here's the job and, you know, learn on the job, but actually give people the opportunity to build their skills through interacting with others. Um, some of the greatest learning opportunities I've had is through um, you know, having worked on special projects with teams that I had no direct exposure to. You say, well, this is a completely different, how does that work over here? This is, this is not how we do this. Let me understand, you know, why are you doing this like this? And suddenly you get this whole different perspective, which I guess makes it easier for you to uh, realize that maybe the world looks a little different from the other side of the table. And to try and you know understand why that world might look a little different, because that's um, you know having the ability to the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes is a, is an important skill, I think, especially when you're when you're negotiating. Yeah, you're picking up a, a number of major attributes and qualities there. Matt, and, and one of them is giving people opportunity to learn and giving them opportunity to learn by doing and learn by experience because people will always remember something much more deeply if they've actually been hands-on, they've experienced it, they've experienced the emotions of it as well as the, the tactile element of whatever it is that uh, that skill entails. And the second one is empathy. Uh, you nailed it there and I can imagine, and we'll talk about negotiation in more detail in a moment, empathy mm. is a fundamental uh, skill in the negotiation table. Yeah. You brought up about Angela Merkel. I want to share a story on that. And she recently uh, resigned, but they all retired, I think 18 years or something like that. Uh, one of the longest serving um, yes, chancellors. Uh, chancellors, I think, ever. And one of the things that I always remember about her and about how human she is, when she visited Brisbane in Australia for I think it was the G20 conference mm -hmm. and all of the other presidents and prime ministers, etc., have all got their entourages and their details, particularly the president of the United States. You can imagine city goes down in lockdown and there's secret service everywhere. And Angela Merkel, when she was in Brisbane the day before the summit, 
she took her bodyguards and walked down to the Caxton Hotel and had a beer with the locals and was talking to them, you know, what's life like in Australia and tell me about Brisbane and what's your favourite this and what's your favourite that. She was a very personable person. And I even understand back in Germany that she would often be spotted doing her own grocery shopping because that was her preference. And she came across as very human to me and probably ahead of her time because leaders 18 years ago certainly didn't do that. So ahead no. of her time and set a standard for others. Uh, I don't, do you remember yeah. that uh, when she came to Brisbane? Or No, I don't recall that particular story, yeah. um, but it sounds just like her. Yeah. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, that human touch, uh, I guess, is, and that accessibility, I guess, is something that um, certainly makes her stand out and is, I think, one of the great qualities of a leader. So you're not, you know, you're not up there. Um, I always feel that, you know, anybody can have a chat. If you've got an issue, let's raise it. And by the way, nobody's perfect, including, you know, <laughs> including those who lead. And um, having that humility is important. And coming back to the empathy part, you see so many, well, I'm going to turn to business now as well. You see so many chairmen or executives or chair people, I should say, or executives making decisions that seem so far removed from the shop floor in in the business sense. And politicians, same thing. They're legislating every day, but how far removed are they from the average citizen's life? And, And I think the Chancellor Merkel did that. It meant that she was still in touch even after all those years. Okay, let's, let's switch to the negotiation uh, topic then. And the theme that we set ourselves for today, and we'll see where the conversation takes us, what do you believe are the negotiation skills that all leaders should have in their kit bag or whatever you want to call it? I think one of the most important is to really understand what it is they're doing when they are negotiating. And that might seem like such an odd comment to make. Um, Ever since we've started running the program, um, our negotiation skills program, before each program, we ask all the participants to give us a little bit of a definition of what it means to them to be Mm -hmm. negotiating. And looking through the definitions that we're offered Negotiation is more than just a conversation, you know, working with the other side to get to an outcome that works for both sides, you know, having a discussion, resolving a dispute. What, what does that actually mean, resolving a dispute? What is it you're actually doing to do that? And I think one of the most critical aspects of negotiating more effectively is to understand what it means. Because most of the people who I've met, either in consulting or on our program, they'll say, well, we're going to do a negotiation. But then when they negotiate, they don't actually negotiate. Typically, most people will problem solve, which is Mm. a different skill. Right. Um, And so much opportunity. This is a great skill. Don't get me wrong. Problem solving is terrific. It works really, really well if both sides have a shared view of what the problem is. And when that's the case, terrific. You know, look at the underlying drivers for both sides and figure out a a scenario, figure out a solution. And I guess our view of what negotiation is in the Western context has been shaped by the, the Harvard negotiation approach, getting to yes, has been a bestseller for the last 30-odd years. And this approach of principled negotiation, which is, you know, what's in any university you go to, that's what you're taught. Most of the negotiation skills programs that you can go on, that's what you're taught, principled negotiation, um, is actually a process of cooperative problem solving. Let me tell you a story, because the the example that's often used to illustrate this is you would have heard the, the story of the orange. Have you been have you familiar with this? The idea, um, and uh, on many programs people use this, this idea is that, you know, two children are fighting 
over who can have the last orange. Right. And the parent comes in to sort of say, well, to sort this out and said, I want the orange. No, no, I want the orange. And the teaching there is, of course, understand the underlying interest. What do you want the orange for? And one child wants to drink some orange juice and the other child wants the rind to grind into zest because they want to bake a cake. And so magically there there is a wonderful solution to this. Uh, You know, one gets the rind to make cake, the other gets to eat the orange or make the orange juice. And that's problem solving. Uh, But, of course, in my house, and I suspect in most people's homes, um, uh, both kids want the orange juice and nobody wants to bake a cake. So what do you do then? Right. And that's where problem solving finishes because when, when the interests don't neatly separate into, oh, that's interesting, so we can do that and problem solving. Uh, commercially, the fact that you want a low price and I want a high price, there's conflict there. Mm. There's not a problem to be solved. There's still a conflict resolution. So problem solving is not going to help you. Yeah. But most people are taught problem solving as a negotiation technique, as the negotiation technique. And that's probably my biggest, um, the first wake up call, if you like, um, that I'd like to, people to come away with. Problem solving is great, but when that doesn't work, you need another approach. So um, we did a study in 2016 with the Procurement Association where we actually measured, we had over 300 participants in this study. And the study was all about, um, this had procurement um, negotiators, also some sales negotiators, all across senior management, junior management. And the question was, what techniques do they use? There are nine fundamentally different techniques to resolve conflict. Negotiation is one of them. And 52% were problem solvers. And the interesting part is... When that doesn't work, when for some reason problem solving doesn't work and they get stuck, what happens then? 43% of those who get stuck will then compromise. You know, half and half will split the difference. What does that mean? Well, both sides lose a little value. Not a great outcome in my book. 25% will switch to imposing their will. So it's like, all right, Mm. if that doesn't work, my way or the highway. And they may get away with that, but it damages the relationship, might even endanger the deal. Maybe there's no deal as a result of that. 9% will give in and just go, yeah, whatever. And again, even as a fallback, negotiation wasn't the preferred choice. Fewer than 10% of participants would naturally negotiate. Now, what does it mean? What do I mean when I talk about negotiating? Negotiation is trading. It's where you explicitly exchange something for something else. Mm. It's a different technique to persuading or compromising or imposing your will or just letting it slide and giving in or kicking it upstairs to the boss. It's a very different technique. Mm. So the first thing I would suggest to those who are on a leadership journey and who want to raise their game is to be aware of how they play, um, the techniques they use to resolve conflict to, you know, when, when, the, when the chips are down and there's a challenge. What is it you naturally do? And to be aware that maybe there are some different techniques if that doesn't work. And negotiation is just one of them, not better or worse, just more suited to some environments uh, and less suited to others, just like all the other techniques. Excellent, Matt. I, th- I think we should unpack that a little bit deeper. And yeah. I'm with you 100% in terms of what you're talking about here. Let's break that down and discuss the differences between compromise and negotiation. So in, in any negotiation, you need to go in with more than one variable. You need to yeah. go in and you need to understand what are your must-haves? What are the things that you cannot give up? You're not allowed to give up. It's the things that in are most important to you and your organization if you're negotiating on behalf of an organization. But equally, what are your list of possible concessions? What are those things that you are willing to give up? And you need to start valuing these things and go, well, on my list of possible concessions, is there anything there that might be really important to the other party? So it comes back to empathy. But now 
we're in a complex relationship, but we've got more than one variable on the table and we can unblock a block situation. Whereas compromise is just moving left and right on a continuum, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's if I had a dollar for every time a client said to me, Matt, this is a tricky one. Uh, there's really only one thing that we need to negotiate and it's price. Um, I'd be a rich man. I wouldn't have to work. Um, it there's is always something. never there about is just always one something. thing. Yeah. Absolutely. It is never just about one thing. Even the most simple transaction is about price and what is it you're getting and quality and value and how much you get. You know, it's never just about one thing. And uh, the skill of the good negotiator is to be aware of all the different bargaining chips that you have available. What is it that you want from the other side? What is it the other side wants from you that you may be prepared to give or maybe not prepared to give? What else could you ask for? You know, how else could you enrich the deal, both for yourself and importantly, also for the other side? What else could you offer the other side that they might value, as you said? Um, in, my, in my previous life, in, in pharmaceutical licensing, um, we're on the sales side. You know, funky new technology often on behalf of a small biotech company, you know, looking to place a piece of technology with a larger pharma partner. Um, of course, price is important. But one of the things that was always on my list was a press release. Uh, a press release of, you know, the pharma company announcing or agreeing that we would announce having done a deal. Um, doesn't cost the pharma company much. It's a bit of an embuggerance really for them to, you know, approve it and they've got shareholders and, you know, all those sort of things. But it's really important for a small biotech because we'll be going out for some more fundraising and to be able to announce that we've done a deal with, you know, a global pharma company is huge. So those sort of trading variables, something that's low cost yeah. to one side and high value to you is tremendous. And you need to know all of those variables when you go in. And if you don't know them, you need to ask the right questions to find out what they are, to find out Absolutely. what is important to the other party. Otherwise, you, you don't really know where to manoeuvre. Yeah. Um, most of our time uh, in consulting is spent in preparation. Yes. Understanding... Finding more variables, what else could we offer the other side? Uh, typically, um, what we find is that you know people tend to prepare for resistance. You know, here's my ideal, and then I'll, I'll think about a fallback. The moment I hear that language, you know, I've got this, this is what we really want, and then I have a fallback. I know that the preparation is all about resistance, right? You know, all about you know, that let's let's kind of you know, concede as little as we can and hopefully end up with a good deal. Um, what I always like to encourage is to prepare for flexibility. It's not about how much are we prepared to lose. It's about how rich can we make this deal. And the richer the deal for the other side, the more you can ask back in return for the value that you're providing to the other side. It's a totally different way of looking at a, at a transaction, at a negotiation but so and, much more powerful. And it comes back to that word you used before or we used before, which is the empathy. You really need to take the time to understand the other party's perspective and then you're going to be able to get somewhere. Yeah. And it's not in a sort of soft and, you know, fluffy kind of way. It's kind of a, it's, um, it's critical. Absolutely critical. One of the things that's quite often misunderstood and you'll even see people out there on LinkedIn or other social media giving people advice about negotiation, one that's quite often misunderstood. Should you be the first to speak or the last to speak, Matt? Uh, I love uh, just like uh, just like medics love patients who come in having looked up their illness on Google and know more than... <laughs> Uh, you know, then the medic coming in. Uh, I love it when participants ask or clients ask about, oh, I read this on Google about, you know, how we should sit at the table or, you know, should we mix it up? Should we not? Should we speak first? No, no, we should always. Fascinating. Um, and often it's, it, it, my advice is counter to, you know, perceived wisdom. Um, if you understand what it is you want and you've had a good exchange with the other side, get on the front foot and make a proposal. Why not? Because if you leave the other side to make the first proposal, 
it's going to be a lot less likely that it hits the spot for you. Right. It's a concept we call anchoring. It's anchoring. fairly straightforward. Um, and uh, and uh, when you think about what happens in commerce and in marketing, uh, in sales, that's what works. Uh, you never go into a shop and have to ask the sales assistant, tell me what, what's the price of this? Uh, you know, can I, can I make you a price? No. It's, the sticker is right there. Every car yard, the sticker is right on the front of the car. Yes, they're anchoring the price. They're telling you what it is they want. Um, you're going to be better off making the first proposal than asking for the first proposal. There are a couple of exceptions to that rule, but typically you're going to be better off having the courage to make the first proposal rather than asking for it. So for our audience at home, I'm going to try and paint a bit of a picture for you here to explain what Matt is talking about with anchoring. And this time I will talk about a continuum. So we're only talking about a single variable this time, but bear with us. And we already have covered that negotiation is always multivariable. But when you're talking about that first variable that you're putting on the table, by speaking first, what you need to have done is done your homework to make sure that your anchor is on the playing field. If it's not on the playing field, it kills the conversation. But if that anchor is on the playing field, it's then going to be the pivot point around which the negotiation is going to yo-yo or or slide. And mm. uh, um, Matt, you, you're far more of an expert than me, but everything that I've seen from all of your teachings and everything I've implemented since has shown me that the negotiation always gravitates somehow to that first anchor. And yeah. whoever gets that first anchor out there, it's going to be within a percentage of that anchor at the end and not slide all the way to the other end of the continuum. Is that your yeah. experience as well? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, sometimes, and sometimes, um, you know, situations change. But absolutely, on, on balance, that is that is spot on. Um, that's another piece of that Google wisdom, you know, aim high. You should always ask for a lot more. You know, the first proposal should always have shock value. Mm. Uh, you know, those you can read those kind of bits of advice. As a professional negotiator, I can tell you that that's nonsense, absolute mm. nonsense. The only conceivable situation where that makes sense is if you're dealing with somebody who has no idea of what a good price would be. Right. right? Somebody who's just, you know, who's an idiot, idiot basically doesn't know the market, doesn't care, has more money than they know what to do with and will just throw it at the first number that you give them. Mm. Under those circumstances, maybe I'll grant you. That's not the circumstance that most people find themselves in. Um, You know, they will negotiate with people who are perfectly aware what a fair price would be, what a reasonable price would be. And so opening with a shock proposal just results in people turning around going, you know, I'm not going to negotiate with these people. They don't know what they're doing. Kills it before it or, starts. Yeah, it's got yeah, to be exactly. on the playing field. Or yeah. even if they stay at the table, it's going to take a long time yeah. to get to a place where a deal can actually be done and time has money. So, um, again, uh, Dr. Google is not always to be trusted. So, so in summary, and yes, there will always be exceptions, but do your homework. Make sure that that first anchor is on the playing field so it's not going to be yeah. that shock value that Matt's talking about that kills the conversation yeah. but is closer to where you want to be than otherwise so getting yeah. that first anchor out there a reasonable realistic proposal absolutely and and if you find that there is um, you know there's an opportunity to add some more wealth value terrific you've prepared Great. for that there are some other variables that you might be able to work into the deal excellent um I never go into a I never go into a shop uh, with just my regular shopping list, you know. Um, do a hardware store or whatever. There's always things that you know, or electrical store, or whatever. There are always things that might come in handy uh, when you're buying a television. What else do you need? You know, you need cabling. You might need a you know a USB stick for the you know some other little bits and pieces. And so you know, those are always things that you can often work into a deal. Fair My wife enough. always accuses me of maybe enjoying it a little bit too much. But. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, very good, Matt. Now, um, 
leaders don't always end up in commercial negotiations like we're talking about. It it could be something to do with human resources. It could be yes. conflict in the workplace. What other types of negotiation do you think that leaders find themselves into on a regular basis? They'd be negotiating on a regular basis with their team, uh, with their managers, of course. And it's, the, you know, those negotiations are not always about dollars. They're often about performance. They're about priorities. They're about time. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk a lot about negotiating in business, but like I said at the beginning, it's, it's not a business skill. It's a life skill. So we have those same negotiations with our team at home, uh, with the kids about computer time and whether they can take the car in the evening uh, to go to a party. And, you know, all those things are also, they're all opportunities to negotiate and to negotiate so that both sides end up with a better outcome because that's what negotiation is all about. Most people think about negotiation as, you know, here's my opportunity to rip the other side off and take the last dollar off the table. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's really about making sure both sides get a good outcome. The priorities one is an excellent one to unpack for a leader. Let's talk about that. Here's a little bit of advice for leaders. This takes a while for people to maybe learn this one, but if everything is your highest priority, it means that everything is your lowest priority. So you do need to understand the variables in your business. Uh, What is, you need to be able to rank things and you need to be able to give your teams the guidance to be able to prioritize their time. Now, in terms of trading and negotiating now and the multivariables, let's talk about a hypothetical. Let's say that you need your team to work late tonight because there's a, a big deadline coming up and we're trading off what needs to be worked on and making sure that that milestone is met. But you yeah. need to understand what's important to your team and what is it that you can give them that might sweeten the deal. Can you give them next Monday off, which is really important to them because of something that's happening at their kid's school? Or You really need to be able to understand what those factors might be. Yeah. Um, uh, as, as we were alluding to earlier in the conversation, it, you have a choice. You might be able to impose your will and just tell them to work harder and stay late. You know, that might get the job done, but there'll be repercussions down the road. Um, maybe you can negotiate. What can you offer the team uh, in return that'll have them happily do the overtime? Both sides. Yeah, you might compromise. Um, you might give in and say and let the deadline slide. You know, lots of different ways in which you approach that. No one right or wrong. It just depends. It depends on what it is you're looking to achieve. It depends on the kind of relationship you have with your team, you're assuming you're having a longer-term relationship. So imposing your will might not be the best approach. Um, you know, if you're negotiating with in the context where there is no long-term relationship and it doesn't really matter, you might choose to impose your will because it's, you know, it's very efficient. If you have the power and you can just tell people to jump um, uh, and do something, um, I had to impose my will the other week on my, you know, landscaping contractor who was, you know, kept letting me down. And I said, look, I, you know, I put a line in the sand because I needed to. And I don't care whether he likes me afterwards as long as he gets the job done. There is a time and a place, of course, uh, for Absolutely. that. And you got to pick your moments. Yeah. And part of the skill is to choose, um, to choose your approach and not just do, you know, what you normally do. Um, that's, that's part of that nuanced approach as, um, as a leader. Great advice. I feel like we're at the risk because, you know, we know each other so well and we both love this topic that if we let this go, we'll still be talking in four or five hours' time and all, uh, of, the, yes. all of the audience <laughs> would have switched off by them. So I'm going to bring us to a close. And there's a question that I ask uh, all of our guests. And that is if you did wind the clock back, and it might be 16 years ago, it might be further back, but when you're a a young person really trying to make your mark on the world, you might be fresh out of university, two or three years out, what's the advice that you would have given to a young Matt, something that you know now that you wish you knew back then? As a scientist, 
um, I guess my focus back in the day was really on the acquisition of knowledge. You know, you go to you go to university and learn things, and you know, you 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 cram your head full of new things that you know, and you do MBAs, and they, they teach you about all sorts of things. I think the world has changed now uh, because knowledge is knowledge is cheap. Everybody has the ability to know pretty much everything because information is now so widely available that it's really difficult now to stand out knowing more than somebody else. Mm. What's really important these days is skill, is actually the ability to execute, to do things in a way that others can't. It's no longer about what you know. It's about who you know and how well you can engage with others, how well you can motivate others, how well you speak and present how well you communicate, whether you can engage and get others to do things, you know, either through motivation or through negotiation, uh, whether you can cut deals, whether you can come to agreements with others that they will uphold and deliver on. Because in the end, that's what we're all doing, not just in the commercial sense. It's, you know, engaging with others to work together as a family, as a team, as a business. Um, and knowledge, bizarrely, is becoming less and less important because it's much more widely available. And what really counts is skill. Yep. So find opportunities to develop your skill. Uh, challenge your leaders to give you opportunities to develop your skills, some real skills, um, rather than just knowledge. My view, you picked on two things there. Uh, instead of knowledge, you spoke about what I would say is applied knowledge. So. Not, mm. not just knowing something, but knowing what to do with it and, and how yeah. to put that into action. That's really key. And the other, all of the other things that you spoke about in one way or another, and I'm going to be careful here because it's a term that can be controversial, but uh, soft skills. And Simon Sinek, he's, uh, he's recently been saying this a lot, saying they should really should not be called soft skills because they're really hard. So people are far more complex than, than the rules of physics, for example. You can calculate the rules of physics. Uh, an emotional reaction from someone, humans are far more complex than that. And that's one of the things that all leaders need to understand pretty quickly is that emotional intelligence, and I will use the term again for now and Simon will hate me, but soft skills are... Uh, the key, but they're really hard. I don't use the term soft skills. I call them core skills. They are core skills um, because without those core skills, none of the hard skills will be any good. (laughs) There we go. Uh, You require the core skills in order to execute the hard skills. I think we should write to Simon and tell him that. I think he should steal that one because he's been on this (laughs) bandwagon a lot lately saying, Stop calling them soft skills, uh, and I agree with him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, and final, finally, Matt, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I want to give you the floor now to talk about your business and to tell, your, tell our audience, I should say, uh, more about uh, what you do. Well, uh, very simple, really. We, have a, we, we are a one-trick pony. We're a, <laughs> there's only one thing we do. Um, we're an expert team of and negotiation professionals, uh, essentially. And um, we uh, work in Australia and overseas, and we do, we focus on negotiation. That breaks down into four things. We negotiate agreements on behalf of clients, actually sitting at the table, leading negotiations or supporting the negotiation team. We help our clients prepare for the negotiations, so develop strategy, tactics. We pressure test preparation, run war games, make sure that their team is on their A game before they go in. We diagnose skills gaps. So we have some diagnostics. We do interviews to identify negotiation capability and see where, you know, where there might be some gaps, and we teach. So we coach individuals, teams in professional negotiation skills, and I guess that's how we first uh, met Mick on the program uh, so that they can uh, go on to deliver superior results for their clients, for their organizations. So those are the, those are the four things we do. And um, 
We do this, like I said, around the globe. Our travel has obviously been a bit more restricted over the last year or so, but we're looking forward to that picking up again uh, in 2021. Thank you so much, Matt. And once again, to the audience, I've been the first-hand recipient of everything that Matt just said, and I've got to tell you, it works. Uh, it it works a charm. It's It's changed my life, and I know a lot of people use that statement a lot. But in this case, it's 100%. It changed my life in terms of the way that I go about my negotiation in everyday life and in business. And when I did three specific workshops that Matt was talking about, preparing for multi-million dollar negotiations, we won every single one of those contracts. Now, what, what I mean by that, we didn't win the negotiation. There's no such thing. It's, we won the contract, we secured the contract, and we beat the competition because we were able to give greater value to our customer and to trade and negotiate the best deal. So it works is the best thing I can say to you. And I encourage you all, if you need those services, please get in contact with Matt and negotiation partners. I couldn't yep. give them a higher uh, recommendation in terms of what they can do for you. Really appreciate that, Mick. And uh, just to underscore that negotiation and selling is a very different discipline. I'm a terrible salesperson. I'm a pretty good negotiator. So uh, www.negotiation.partners is where you find us. There you go. I should have said that right at the beginning. Thank you so much, Matt. And of course, uh, it was so great to see you uh, on the screen here on Zoom and to talk to you again. Um, and I look forward to talking to you again very soon. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Mick. You've been listening to The Leadership Project with your host, Mick Spears. We really hope you enjoyed this great episode with Matt Lohmeyer. Once again, if you'd like to get in contact with negotiation partners, we've included their contact details in the show notes. We hope that you're enjoying the show. If you are, please remember to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast service so that you are reminded of all of our future episodes. And why not tell a friend? They might get some value out of it as well. We look forward to bringing you some more great content shortly. In the meantime, please do stay safe and always remember to challenge the status quo. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calibo, and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.